This is a Salt Hill Media original podcast. Hello, welcome to the Ireland podcast. This is Fender Jackson. This is the second in a series celebrating St. Bridget of Kildare, one of her three patron saints of Ireland. The first one being Patrick, I guess, the second one being St. Bridget, and the third one being St. Colm Kill, who's got connections up there in Derry. So this week is all about the 1500th anniversary of St. Bridget, and I thought it would be a good idea to chat with someone who has a good grasp of the facts of what the lady, Bridget of Kildare, was all about. In the previous episode, I was talking with Paula O'Brien, who works for Kildare County Council, and she mentioned that Sister Rita knows a lot about St. Bridget. So it was a no-brainer for me to go to the religious centre of Ireland when it comes to our only female patron saint. Sister Rita Menahan is what we call a Bridgetine sister. Don't you just love that adjective? Bridgetine. Yeah, so Sister Rita is based in Solace of Vrija, which translates as light or flame of Bridget. Solace is the Gaelic word for light. To quote from their website, Solace Vrija is a Christian spirituality centre with a focus on St. Bridget and the early Christian Celtic tradition, which had a profound sense of the presence of God in everyone and everything. It is a spirituality nourished by ritual, tradition, contemplation, experience and story. Whilst learning about St. Bridget, I was remembering an earlier episode which I recorded with another Bridget, Breege Rogers. Breege Rogers is a retired politician and she worked with John Hume's SDLP. Breege was quite instrumental in delivering the Good Friday Agreement, which helped bring peace to Northern Ireland. In that interview, Breege was talking about the concerns of unionists, or people in the Protestant community, in Northern Ireland. Breege said that the unionists had concerns about the Republic of Ireland being a Roman Catholic state. She then argues that this is less a case now. So, whatever your faith or lack of faith is, you cannot deny that the Catholic Church has had a huge influence over the island of Ireland since about the 6th century. And given that this is the 1500th anniversary, I thought it would be remiss of me not to delve into the life and times of Bridget of Kildare. So, without any further ado, I now bring you the Bridgetine sister, Sister Rita Menahan. Band, wrap it up. I'm Phil Coulter, and you're listening to the Ireland Podcast. Hello, who are you and what do you do? My name is Rita Menahan. I'm a Bridgetine sister, and I'm based here in Kildare Town in Solis Vida Spirituality Centre. We are the Bridgetines are in Kildare since 1992. We came in here in 1992 to reclaim Bridget in a new way for a new millennium. So we've been here since 1992. And I work mainly in the Spirituality Centre, leading pilgrims. In my previous life, I was trained as a psychotherapist and worked in, in Dublin as a psychotherapist, worked at a number of different jobs, I suppose, throughout my life. But now I'm here at last, for the last stage of life, in Kildare and enjoying every minute of it. Wow. Such a history already. <laughs> <laughs> so do, do I address you as Sister Rita? Yeah, right, or Rita, whichever you're comfortable with. I like I'm Sister comfortable. Rita. Yeah, yeah. Right, okay, Fender. Yeah, yeah. So uh, tell me, well, really what I want to know about today is about St. Bridget herself. What can you tell us and how accurate is it and all the rest? Right, that's a difficult one. It's a difficult question, but, you know, I do the best I can with it. Just to, to say, we're talking about a time of pre-recorded history. So we're very dependent on an oral tradition. There are very few historical facts about St. Bridget. 
But we do have some information. In fact, we have probably have more information about St. Bridget than we have about many of the other early Irish saints. But their existence is never questioned. Sometimes St. Bridget's is. So that's an interesting one. But uh, also, we had a talk from a Dr. Neve Witcherly quite recently, and uh, she would say the very the fact that there are so few historical facts about Bridget leaves her malleable, so that everybody, everyone has his or her own take on Bridget. But as she said, that's probably a good thing. It's probably what's keeping her relevant today. You know, that interest in her all can feel connected to her and with her in some way. So just to say um, the annals, you know, there's discrepancy and one annal says she was born this year. and the next. So we have to, when we're talking about dates, we have to be satisfied with approximations. Most of the annals would say she was born in the year 454 and died in 524, and that she would have established a double monastery, a church here in Kildare, was the founder of a church here in Kildare around 480 AD. A mighty woman, an inspirational woman, an extraordinary 5th century Irish woman who is still speaking to us today and still is seen as relevant and speaks to many of the issues that confront and challenge us in our world today. And where was she born? Where she was born. Oh, that's a big one. You could be landing me in a fight here. Now, when I was going to primary school, I was told she was born in Fahart in County Louth. And I always thought that's it, because I had been up to Fahart and loved it and great devotion to her up there and still is. And then I come down here to Kildare and they say, no, she was born out the road here, about five miles outside Kildare town. And Most recent research, as far as I understand it, would indicate that she was born on the Kildare Offaly border, that she belonged to a sept at the time called the Fahart, and that that Fahart got confused with Fahart in County Louth. Mm -hmm. Now, this is what the research is saying, and uh, that, you know, most historians would now be saying that she was born in the Leinster area. But look, you know, there is tremendous devotion to Bridget in Fahart, and I'm not going to take away from that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's the situation as I understand it, Fender. Brilliant. And how about uh, her family life? Were, were they wealthy? Were they aristocrats or were they yeah, very yes. opposite? Yeah. No, they, they, she would have belonged to an aristocratic family. Her father would have been a chieftain, a warrior, a military, had a very important military role probably in the sept, in the fort. But in, um, actually, it was only today I was reading that while she did belong to an aristocratic family, they were a kind of a, a lower grading of aristocrats, you know, wouldn't have been as as significant as some of the dynasties of the time, but uh, would at the same time have been well-connected and they would have been well-off, a well-off family. And that's probably one of the reasons why uh, that she kind of uh, could break through the norms of the time and was well-connected enough. Life at that time, you have to understand the historical context. And I think it's only when you understand the historical context of the time that you can really appreciate the significance and understand Bridget and the wonderful woman that she was. Because she was born at a time, a very restrictive society. It was overwhelmingly patriarchal and hierarchical. And the fact that she was able to break through, you know, at that time when she decided she was, we t- were told, tradition tells, she wanted to get ma- uh, her parents, her brothers especially, wanted her to get married because they were entitled to a bride price. A woman was worth half the price of her closest male relative. So there was a big pr- bride price going with Bridget. And when she resisted and said, Christianity had come, that she wanted to give her life to this new Christ that she had got to know. Uh, You can imagine all hell broke loose Mm -hmm. in the household. And in the end, her father relented. But the fact that she had the courage to stand out, uh, I think, is very, very significant. And uh, the only route, kind of female monasticism, was really the only route 
by which a woman could achieve some social and political authority and standing in society at that time. And the fact that her, you know, that her father was well off and a chieftain probably helped her to break through those norms of the time and to transcend them and, and to do what she did. And how about her calling to Christ? How did that come about or what can you tell us about that? You see, we don't know. Folkloric, folkloric sources would tell us that she embraced Christianity in her early teens and that her father father would have been pre-Christian. But her mother, they say, was a slave working in the father's household, a bondmaid, I think they were called at the time, and that she became Christian and that it was she who brought British into Christianity. Other than that, I don't, I, I wouldn't, you know, I could speculate and others speculate, but I think, you know, that's the basic information that I have about that. I'm sensing a, a, a bit of a story here with the parents. So what happened there that she you was could amazed? Yeah. And you said there are all sorts of versions to the story. So it's difficult to know which is the true version. Some say the father, they had to leave the household, as you could appreciate, uh, you know, the father, that his wife wouldn't have been too happy with. Uh, oh, so he was already married? He was already, oh yes, yes, yes. So she would have been born to his bondmaid who was worked in the household. So you can imagine, now we don't know really, we don't know the story. Some said that the, the, her mother had to leave the household and that she went to a druid over in the West. Now, I don't really know anything much about that, Fender, and I won't go there yeah. because I don't know how accurate it is. Fair and enough. I don't want to lead people astray either. Yeah, of course. But you will get different versions of folklore in yeah. relation to it. But that she came back eventually and that her father relented, you know, and that um, he allowed her what they said at the time, she wanted to take the veil, to take the veil. And he did. And that she established a double monastery for women and men here in Kildare, the sole one of its kind in Ireland. Explain that then. What is it of its kind that makes it so unique? What makes it so unique is that it was a double monastery. It was a monastery for women and men, which is most extraordinary. That's why it says what made it unique in Ireland. And that uh, she invited a hermit who lived in Newbridge, about eight kilometres from Kildare, to look after the male section of the monastery. But there was a lovely old gentleman here when we came into Kildare, Tyke Hayden. Tyke was a principal, I think, in the school, vocational school, and a local historian. And he'd say, oh, she brought over Conleth to look after the male section. But there was never any doubt as to who was in charge in Kildare. Bridget was boss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we're told that they worked collaboratively. And, you know, it was really a model of inclusion at that time in 5th century Ireland that you had the woman who was the abbess and Conleth, if you like, taking orders from her. And is that monastery still in existence, the actual physical no, structure? nothing, no, Fender, unfortunately, nothing remains today of the original monastery. Now, it would probably the earliest one in the 5th century would have been Timber, Maud, Wattle. And then uh, it, there must have been a, a lovely structure there, a wooden structure, of course, it would have been again. Because in the earliest hagiographical life of Bridget, now not biographical or autobiographical, a monk in her monastery gives a description of the monastery and of the church there around 650, within 150 years of her death. An extraordinary structure. He even tells of the hangings on the wall, and the door through which the monks enter and the door through which the nuns enter. And now we know then with the coming of the Vikings, you know, and the monastery went through a very, very turbulent period, as you can imagine, with the Vikings and then the unstate coming up the Normans after that. And the Irish were no angels either. I believe they attacked and plundered the monastery on occasions as well. But so what we have today in Kildare, we have a 13th century cathedral on a 5th century monastic site. And that's where the the site was, the same place? Yes, 
Yeah, now tradition holds that we're on that site, the 13th century cathedral and uh, built by, reputedly built by Bishop Ralph of Norman uh, of um, Bristol. And he built a lovely cathedral there. But again, that was almost raised to the ground, you know, through the subsequent rebellion and the rising of 1641 and all the rest. And uh, but some of it remains, some of the lower portion of the south transept, I think, the wall there. Now, on the grounds as well today, we have um, we have a round tower. Now, some say the earliest part, in two stages almost, the earlier part of it may have been built much earlier than the later. That, you know, some dated around the 10th century, but could have been much earlier. And it's the highest surmountable round tower in Ireland. And also there's another uh, kind of famous, um, again, the ruins of what they call a fire temple here in Kildare. And it's just a wall today. And when they're restoring it, they built a rectangular wall. I'm sure it would have been circular probably you know, in earlier stages. But probably the local historian that I told you about earlier says it would be one of the most ancient sites in Ireland up there. What can you tell us about round towers? I mean, they were so prevalent in Ireland. What was their purpose and what was their choice of design? Why were they designed in such a fashion? Some, now again, you know, speculation about that, some kind of, or bell towers, warning in the event, you know, calling the monks and the nuns to pray. Others would say, uh, you know, they were used if they knew that an attack was about to take place from an invader. And also they were used as places, we're told, where they were called bell towers. They were used to hide the sacred vessels and any precious valuables from the invader. That's what we're told. And the doors were raised up above the ground. You know, the ro- lovely Romanesque door here in the one in Kildare. They're, you know, they're powerful structures, extraordinary structures that could have been built at such an early age. And they have no foundation, the one here. It's just resting on stones, huge stones. A fabulous, fabulous piece of architecture, you know, uh, that our early ancestors were capable of. I'm just looking at the photograph of, or a photograph of the round tower. It's like 32 metres tall, it says. That's right. That's right. And uh, we're told the original had a conical top. It's a castellated top, as you see there now. Uh, a kind of a, for if the cathedral of the 30 was built with military as well as ecclesiastical concerns in mind because it had been invaded so many, many times. Mm-hmm. So it had, when it had the conical top on, like the cone, uh, it was the highest in Ireland. But then when they were restoring it, they felt the uh, tower, the base of the tower, was unable to take the weight of the cone top. And that's why they put the castellation top on it. Wow. This is all now what I have heard this since I came in. I love it. You're, 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 you're fond of information. Oh, um, I love history. I love always did. Yeah, and it always loves did. you. I'll tell you. I'll t- <laughs> the reason why I say that is because I always say I love history, but history doesn't love me. In other words, Imagine. I hear something and two, three days later, it's gone. You know, um, yeah. whereas if I yeah. hear a song, I can, you know, I can recreate the song generally yes. in months to come, you know. So, yes. yeah. Anyway, back to uh, Bridget. How did she pass? How did she pass? Well, no, what we're told is, all we're told is, you know, this very, we have got seven medieval lives of Bridget. But as I told you, they're not autobiographical or bio, they're hagiographical, they're Christian writings, but they're very powerful powerful writings and you know Cajetosis um, tells us that she died and uh, you know again the date we get is on the 1st of February 524 and you know uh, that her tomb was both uh, she and Condit were buried in the earliest monastic church at either side of the main altar in the church and that they would have uh, stayed there until the uh, preeminent, if you like, attack by the invaders, a preeminent attack, and that they were removed for safety to Don Patrick to County Down. This is what tradition tells us now. And that they would have been in Don Patrick, you know, for centuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I suppose, you know, we're having a big day here on Sunday. Uh, a few years ago, just when we were preparing for this celebration and commemoration of the 1500th anniversary of her death this year, uh, some local men, it was a librarian and the head of the County Kildare uh, Tourism Board, they said, why not bring Bridget home? Her relics of Bridget on the continent in Europe, her cloak was supposed to be in Bruges in Belgium, on display in the museum in Belgium, uh, another relic in Alsace in Strasbourg, relics in um, Lisbon in Lumiere, just a few miles outside Lisbon, and said, surely we should have a relic of Bridget in Kildare. And especially in time, bring her home. That was the message. And we were wondering what they were up to, but they really tried hard. And I kept very quiet because I uh, knew we had one. We had got a portion of the Lumiere relic in the 1930s as Brigidine sisters. And it was just for private veneration for our sisters in Tolloway, County Carlow, when we got it. I think the same one went to Dundalk, Kilcurry in Dundalk, I think. And another one to Cholester in Dublin, but we got a portion of it and we had it in Tullow. And I happened to say to them, well, you know, they were so downhearted about the whole thing. Sure, maybe we could give it to Kildare, the loan of it even for this year. So it's going to be coming. The bishop is coming for for a mass next Sunday and the relic is coming back to Kildare. So it's coming back. So there's some people very happy about it, that it's coming back to St. Bridget's Parish Church in Kildare Town on Sunday, on the 28th of January. And it's portion of the Lumiere relic. And the parish priest of Lumiere has already arrived in Kildare Town, Father Francisco... Rodriguez from Lumiere has wow. already come here and he's new and knows very little and he wants to come over. But the interesting thing is that it was three knights who took it uh, from down Patrick to Lumiere. And they must have been on their way to their Holy Land or something, mm-hmm. but stopped in Lumiere and they continue to spend their lives there and they're buried there. And on the wall of the church there, the Church of St. John the Baptist in Portugal is the inscription, three knights who brought the relic of St. Bridget from Ireland and who are interred within this building. Wow. It's, so it's, they must have, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, they must have stayed with the relic and kind of were guardians of the relic while they were there. And they died there. So it's an interesting history. And then uh, we had been trying to get the relic. So we, we would have been we found it as a congregation. See, it was a bishop who founded the earlier Brigidine uh, Sisters Order would have, with the time of the Reformation, all the monasteries were suppressed. And it was a bishop in this diocese, a bishop Daniel Delaney of Kildare and Auckland, who founded, if you like, or refounded the Sisters of St. Bridget here in the Diocese of Kildare and Auckland and in 1807 and said, you are not a new congregation, you're a restoration of the ancient order of St. Bridget of Kildare. So we'd be the later Bridgetine Foundation. Mm-hmm. So uh, our sisters succeeded in getting, we're told, a portion of the relic from Lumiere back to Ireland in the early 1930s. So that's the one that's coming to Kildare on Sunday. And can you just define what a relic is? It's a very, it's, you know, there are first class relics, second class relics. Now, to be honest, I'm not into relics that much, mm. but I understand that first class relics, if it's a part of the body of the saint. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and, you know, would you get second class and clothes and that kind of thing? You know, like we would today, mementos of people. Yeah. But they would have had to be authenticated by, you know, very serious uh, uh, people in in prominent positions in the church and all the rest to have got, you know, authorization for the relic. Mm-hmm. And but our parish priest, when he was introducing, I thought was very good. He said, look at, he said, Last Sunday, he was telling the people about it coming. He said, look at, in itself, it's something maybe hollow. It's what's important about it is, is the values that we live by, mm. the values of the saint that we live by. That's what the emphasis is on. You know, I thought it's not a magical thing. You know, it's the values of the saint and what the saint represented. And, you know, it's a way to God. You're really interceding. You're going to God through the saint, if you like. So I thought that was a nice explanation for it. That's a lovely explanation, actually. It's yeah. reminding me of my nephew. I'll tell you a quick story. 
my mother passed away a couple of years ago and yes. my actually it's almost three years ago and my nephew's girlfriend uh, yes. she heard that the family my family was given the clothes away to charity so she took one of my mother's dresses right and right. then on his birthday i think it was she gave him this cushion that was made from one of her dresses isn't that just beautiful? Lovely. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah there's tears lovely. all around of joy for that one. I know, I yeah. know, wonderful. So this is, it's it's a reminder, it's, you know, the, holding the memory, but holding the values too that they lived by. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that makes sense to me. In that sense, I can respect it. I respect the relic. But, you know, after that, we don't know because it, Ireland has had such a checkered history and relics were big business at the Middle Ages because they attracted tourists from all over mm. and crowds flocked to relics. There was a huge, huge uh, worship of relics. They were seen too as kind of something to attract the tourists. So whether authentic or inauthentic, we do. You see, that's why you're always just that little bit doubtful. But I take it on faith that this one is authentic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So we all love our miracles. We do, we uh, and do. And you can't have a saint without a miracle. That's true. That is, tell that us all is, about it. Oh, tell us about the miracles of Bridget. Yeah. Well, uh, look, I were, if I were to tell you, they're all in, you know, any of them that I know about are in the, the first, in the early lives. One of the, the Vita Prima and the Vita Bridget, the life of Bridget, the first life and the second life. Uh, we're having a talk here, and I think you should come to Kildare for this talk. It's in the um, library. Uh, they have a talk. It's called A Parcel of Miracles from her first book, The Life of Bridget, The Life of Cogitosis. They're giving a talk. So it's all about miracles. Look, at, you know, you'd read their first life in an hour if you're ever, just to get a copy of it. Mm -hmm. And I, some of them, they're on the web now, vendor, mm, yeah. you know, that you could access them there. But again, they're replications of the gospel. Mm -hmm. You see, they're really, um, what the writer is trying to do is to, not to give you the detailed facts, the historical facts of the life of the saint, but how the saint was became an exemplar of the Christian way of life. So that's where the emphasis is on. That's why they're called hagiographical or Christian writings, because they weren't written to tell us historical facts. They were just written to tell us the Christian story mm -hmm. through Christian lens. So they're, you know, the gospel stories. They're the gospel stories. And, you know, Bridget is even turning water into ale. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the, like the cana and the water into wine. That's the most important you know. miracle, they say. <laughs> Excuse me. No problem. Tell us about the crosses then, St. Bridget's crosses. What can you tell us yes, about those? Again, again, what I can tell you, we don't really know the origin of the cross. Again, going to school, the story I heard was of the chieftain who was dying and Bridget went out to visit them and she sat on beside his bedside and he was, she at the floor covering of the time, probably the mud floor, she picked up the these rushes, the rushes from the floor. They were probably at the carpets of the time and she began to weave and he asked her what she was doing and she said she was making a cross and he wanted to know what was that what she was doing so she told him the story of Jesus's life death and resurrection and about Jesus overwhelming love unconditional love for all of us and his forgiveness and he wanted to know could he become part of that too and she assured him he could and we're told that he died peacefully now that's the story i heard we, it's very difficult to find the origin of the cross they're not mentioned in the early lives but you know i think it may uh, like many other things you know it's transition british was born at a time of transition you know pre-christian to christian and that many of the ancient customs you know, that it may have been a sun symbol brought into Christianity with that little story, assimilated into Christianity through time. That's my understanding of it, Fender. Yeah. And used as protection in the houses, protection against fire, illness, disease, and even put out because great British had great affinity with animals. And they were also put out in the sheds and with the cows and the cows and the cattle for protection. Yeah, so tell me about the relationship between Bridget and the earth, because I've heard this a lot and uh, I yeah. st I'm still confused about this. I know, I know, I know. You see, again, uh, 
because of the, I suppose the, the pre-Christian connection, like we're told, you know, that prior to Bridget's time, uh, were gods and goddesses were worshipped in ancient Ireland, and one of these goddesses was named Brigit. Now, whether she's part of Brigentia, the 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 European goddess or not, we don't know. The first historical reference we have to her the goddess, the first historical one now we, we know was there before this is in Cormac's Lossary at the beginning of the 10th century, the late 19th century, when he tells us about the goddess, but he also tells us about the saint alongside the saint, the Santa Brigitte and he talks, you see she was probably called after the goddess and got the name Bridget, the woman Bridget and that's why it causes a lot of confusion today because some say was she just personification of the goddess did she ever really exist as a historical person well I can tell you if you're talking or, or listening to Dr Neve Witchley you'll very definitely know she was a historical person and she will go so far as to say and I like this quote as you will appreciate to question other than that St Bridget was a real person is to perpetuate a patriarchal agenda in which women's voices are stifled and their stories suppressed because that's what got happened through time and how Bridget almost got written out, the woman Bridget mm. got written out of history and, uh, and it was often dismissed just as a myth. And she said historians even have done a disservice to her that she would have probably been one of the most significant women in Western Christendom and that she and the abbesses who succeeded her in Kildare were the most powerful women in Ireland up until the 13th century. There were some of the few women who got into the Irish annals. The very few women are mentioned in the early Irish annals, but the abbesses of Kildare are. So it's a very significant history yeah, and it's yeah. an extraordinary impact. And again, you see the goddess. And now in my understanding of it, I, again, because I have studied the saint more than I have the goddess, but Bridget would have inherited some of the attributes and some of the folklore at, because she was born at this time of transition in Irish society. And the, um, the goddess would have been a source. The goddess now, the daughter of the guy there, they say, would have the three, uh, you see, his mythology, I'm not one for into mythology, but as I understand it, uh, the daughter of the great god Dagda, and he had three daughters, three say, a uh, woman um, of poetry, healing and smithcraft, and they were associated with the pre-Christian deity, Brigit, and some of those uh, values, but I mean, she was a, a loved, much loved goddess, I'd say, by the Irish people, and like most, a lot of them would have taken her name. Mm -hmm. Like British would probably have got the name of the pre-Christian deity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, British. And again, the goddess, the body of the goddess was associated with the earth and associated. With, now, this is again. I read this years ago. And I have not read anything about it more recently, but that the earth, you know, and that the the wells even were the womb of the earth, the womb of the goddess, and. I hope I'm not confusing you. <laughs> no, no, this is great. This is great. I make, I'm making sense, I hope. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but I definitely need to read up more about it. Yeah. But, um, because, because, but always close to the earth and of nature, you know, close to the land. And this, but you see, the early Celtic, our early Celtic, they knew intuitively, you know, and they had tremendous respects for the earth, the air, fire, water. They were so dependent on the elements. They prayed, the God they prayed to was Reen Anul, the king of the elements, yes. because they were so dependent on the elements. And the earth was so, the earth, and in the old mythology, you see the old thing, you know, the coming of the Celts and the fight there, you know, there that the um, people before the Celts went underground and the Celts stayed overground and, and you know, that there were always a very close connection between those overground. They believed in another world, not the hell and heaven that we were learned to believe in, but they believed in another world, a spirit world. They were, the early Celts were a deeply religious people mm -hmm. in their understanding of the spirit world and their respect for all creation. They knew intuitively what scientists are telling us now about the interconnectedness and the interrelatedness of all creation, the respect they had for the earth. And then you see, I suppose, Bridget the Saint, like her feast day, it's, I know it's the feast of also of Imbolg, you know, the pre-Christian festival of Imbolg. And that um, 
Sorry, just on that, what is that uh, translated as? Do you know? In bulk. In the belly. In the belly. Okay, okay. In the belly. And uh, that, uh, do you know where I get a lot of my information? (laughs) Dr. Google. Dr. Google. Google. (laughs) (laughs) I don't believe everything about Dr. Google. But guess You know, it's very helpful if you're looking for something in a hurry. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And having time to really look it up properly. But uh, I won't be advocating now that you go to Dr. Google. Well, you can always, it's good to check out what the sources are or who's saying That's it and true. what credibility they have. Yeah, yeah, but they would, you know. I read a lot of his books, a great Celtic scholar, Benedictine from Glenstall. Mm-hmm. You know, he has a, he got his doctorate on Bridget as goddess, the rights of Bridget, mm-hmm. goddess and saint. Another uh, fantastic resource is by Dr. Noel Kassan. He's uh, wrote um, a very definitive work on British. He was the keeper of the manuscripts in the National Manuscripts Man- National Library of Ireland for over thirty years, and he has written a book on said British life, legend, and cult. And he's a powerful. You know, he talked about all the connections with British, the geographical her- ge- the geographical spread of British throughout the world is just amazing. Mm-hmm. The early monks and the migrants and all carrying her name and her spirit right across the world. You must be really getting tired of no, listening this to me, Fender. <laughs> so, um, so I'm going back 30 years and I was in yes. England at a rock festival. Yes. At that festival, I kept hearing the name St. Bridget bubbling up. Can you think which yeah. festival that was? No, I don't know what festival it is, but I know, I'll tell you, this is a new story, but it's a very interesting piece of history. I haven't told it to many, but um, I remember we were invited, my sister and myself, who was also a Bridgetine Mary, who was here in Kildare, and uh, we have a lot of goddess groups coming here. You know, we're into very much into the goddess. And we had a group here from Glastonbury. Exactly. And, That's the festival. That's, That's the festival. <laughs> but wait, wait until I tell you now how, how, about that. Uh, so they invited us to go over to the goddess festival, not the music festival now, yeah. to go. And uh, of course, we said, oh, gosh, we better not, wife. The, you know, what's going to happen to us? Now, this is about 20 years ago. Yeah. And uh, what would happen would be, and we didn't even tell our sisters, <laughs> but we did tell the leader. And, and we said to her, but we said, we are invited. We're talking about our experience of Bridget as goddess and saint. And she said, but why wouldn't you go? She said, if they're all coming here, you should, you know, visit maybe. So we took off to Glastonbury, <laughs> to the goddess conference. And we spoke on Bridget and our experience of Bridget as goddess and saint. But you're really going to laugh at this. We were in the town hall and on the same night, uh, Van Morrison was playing in the Abbey. No way. The of the Abbey in <laughs> But, but the, that we were here, were we in the town hall, the nuns, and he up in the Abbey in Glastonbury. Oh, that's brilliant. The, the, funny, the funny part of it really, not the funny part of it was, but there was a lady there, she was a lecturer in the university, listening to us. Well, I think there were about 3,000, or sorry, 300 goddesses in the room that day. And... Uh, she wrote to me afterwards and she said, you know, she said something happened. I don't know what she did, she said. But she said, always the backdrop for the music festival, the goddess was British Druid, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Druid, goddess Druid. Yeah. And she said, the year that you were there and following, it was British Druid, goddess, saint. Mm. So that's interesting, wasn't it? Absolutely. Now, I don't know if we had if we had any say in it, but it was just interesting mm. that she observed it and, and she wrote to us and told us about this. And what was the connection between Bridget and Lassenbury then? You see, again, again, I don't think Bridget ever really travelled outside of Ireland. I don't think she would. Now, the monks and all that went out and carried her story and all the rest. But there's a whole history. And... I, I do not know that she was in Glastonbury and that she travelled to Glastonbury and that her relics, some of the relics were there in Glastonbury and her bell. I don't know, but there is great, great interest in her. And I don't know if you saw that programme, Finding Bridget, with uh, Siobhan McSweeney for last time, Bridget's Day. She, um, and I think it might be replayed for this year. But, uh, you know, there she spoke to some of the goddesses over there and the rituals and all the rest. But the emphasis there, 
I but as regards whether she ever was or not, I would again I don't want to take away anybody's beliefs or to, and to respect their beliefs, but personally, I don't think she would ever have been outside of Ireland in person. Mm-hmm. So tell me this, where does she fit in the timeline with regards to the other patron saints of Ireland? Where does she fit? Yeah, so... Well, you see, Patrick, she would... Patrick, like, they say kind of Christianity was definitely in Ireland before Patrick's time, even though he gets the credit for it. Now, Patrick would have been in the 430s, they say. Mm-hmm. Now, whether she ever met St. Patrick or not, there's a, a folklore tells us that her mother did and that she was baptised and that she had a friendship with St. Patrick. Whether that ever was true or not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Columba and the Column Kill part of it and Derry and all that, you know, which would be a little later. And the whole story about, but they all, you know, whether they, I, I know more about Patrick and Bridget now than Columba, but I love Columba and Derry and all that, the symbolism of Derry and going to Iona and they, you know, folklore, whether it's folklore history about how he was banished to Iona. You know, the photo, the copying of the famous book of the Gospels mm. and that had come and that they were copied and that he was banished, punished to Iona for it. Yeah. Banished to Iona. I think Columba actually happened after Bridget anyway. Uh, she, oh, yeah, well, he was definitely after Bridget. She yeah. was definitely after Bridget. Yeah. Um, yeah. So where do you place her uh, in terms of significance, uh, particularly alongside St. Patrick? Some people I have and heard... I'll, but I'll tell you, sorry, yes. No, yes, s- Some people I have heard think that St. Bridget is a real patron saint of Ireland. Yeah, well, I'll tell you now, uh, you know, I've had this on very definite authority and we've had talks on it, on she was far better known than St. Patrick in continental Europe. The monks and going out and, and the migrants and the scholars leaving in the early days, it was Bridget they seemed to have taken out of Ireland and not Patrick, because all over Europe still today in monasteries and in libraries and dedications to her and stained glass depictions of her and even up to the present day Noel Kassan in his book Life, Legend and Cult he documents all this and it's very powerful reading but the influence that she had in Europe to this day and with only I'll just tell you this this man was over in we had them over recently. You see, we have people coming here from all over the world. Uh, a doctor uh, from Strasbourg, Alsace, Strasbourg. And uh, he said he was walking along the street over there because he was attending the council in Strasbourg, European Union. And uh, he was walking along the street and he saw a Bridget's Cross outside the church. God, he said, I'm going in here to see what this is all about. And he went in and he found out, and this man would be very much into history himself. He was telling us he shared, he gave one of the talks in Kilcullen, the historical talks. And uh, he, because he said there wouldn't really be an Irish footprint in Elsa, in Strasbourg. You know, they wouldn't have, the scholars even, the Irish now into Europe, they go to, you know, up much further and all the rest in France and different parts. But they wouldn't have gone down maybe as far as Strasbourg, Alsace. So he went in and he said, why is there St. Bridget's Cross? And they said, well, uh, they said our parish, you know, our churches are getting smaller and their parishes are clustering and uh, the, the latest four parishes in this area, uh, that is their symbol. And he said, why did they use Bridget as cross as a symbol? Well, he said, they went back and they studied and they went back to their roots as a Christian group. And they felt the, the symbol that suited the coming together was Bridget because that was their first introduction to Christianity was from the Irish monks and Bridget, all telling them all about Bridget and the story of Bridget and the gospel. You know, that she's, if you like, her life was based on the gospel. So there they had adopted out today in Alsace uh, the Bridget's cross again as the symbol to unite their four parishes and the four arms of the cross each wow. taking 
was not a beautiful That's symbolism beautiful, as well. But, but they went back to the roots when they went and talked about it and worked on it. They went back, wanted to get something that would take them back to the roots, back to where the energy came from in the first place. That's brilliant. But that she was, she was far better known. And you, if you read North Sands book in continental Europe than St. Patrick. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm coming to an end here. So I, do, right. I, I just want to ask another couple of questions. One is, if there's one takeaway piece of information that people could, that you would advise people to have about St. Bridget, what would that be? Well, I, I'm torn between because I really think the two things. Tell me two then. Worth, <laughs> care for planet Earth, our common home. Care for the Earth. You know, I think today it's our Earth. Is it you know? And respect, respect for each other and for plan, for all creation. You know, for not just the human species, for the natural world as well as the human world. And the, because we can't survive without each other. We can't. And I think the other one, I think I really would have Bridget, the woman of peace, the peacemaker. She was so often called on, you know, to, to bring reconciliation uh, to the people of her time, renowned as the peacemaker, giving away her father's sword so that a poor family could feed, uh, could barter it to feed his hungry family. And I day with what the world is awash with weapons of war. We're, you know, a crisis point again in our world in relation to war. And it's, you know, I think the lesson there, you know, we're, we're never going to get peace by building up a weapons industry, hmm. you know, and more, the, our world is awash with weapons and they must be laughing all the way to the bank because the only people, the suffering in the world, the death, the destruction, the persecution, and, you know, and the weapons industry is the one that's thriving in our world today. So, if, you know, so I think really become, you know, and to become peacemakers in our world today. And I think we've got to have it within ourselves first. If we are not at peace within ourselves, we can't radiate peace and bring it to the world and advocate for peace in the world. And that's why we came up and I'm going to end on this note, Fender, last year here, Marking St. Bridget's Day, we wanted to kind of give it a little spiritual underpinning with the value associated with Bridget. And we launched a global pause for peace movement. You know, here in Kildare, the people of Kildare calling on people all around the world to stop for one minute at noon. St. Bridget's Day, no matter where you are, local time, no matter where you are in the world, for peace. And, you know, by pausing for peace, we are sending out a message that we are opposed to warfare and the proliferation of arms in our world. And the whole movement, the aim of it is to build a spirit of global solidarity in our search for peace. There's an urgency about this because there are more weapons and war. It's it's fueling conflict in our world, fueling uh, oh, I could go on this for ages. I, I think I've said enough. I no, think I've said it's, enough. it's wonderful listening to this because, yeah. uh, you know, you're reminding me of my conversation with Breed Rogers. And isn't it right. ironic that she's named after uh, St. Bridget? And she, Bridget, yes. And she was um, quite instrumental in delivering the Good Friday Agreement, which brought about the peace in Northern Ireland. She was. And how that uh, she was. And that's what breaks my heart. You know, we're going to have to go to the negotiation table. We're going to dialogue. We're going to, and how our leaders are just standing back and, and you know, allowing all this. To, I know, you know, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody, but mm. I think our leaderships have to step up to this or else I think the United Nations has lost all its power. It's been a powerful and a unifying force, but something needs to be done. Something yeah. has to happen and there's an urgency about this because our planet is not going to survive. We're not going to survive if it just keeps growing at the rate it is, all this conflict and in our world and the destruction of our beautiful world. We need more John Humes and David Trimble's Oh, we and certainly do. Breed Rogers. Breed Rogers. We certainly need Bridget's there. More Brid- Bridget at that time and Bridget at uh, way back, Bridget, there, who was there at that time of the Good Friday Agreement, and are going back further than to our Bridget. And there, you know, there are a lot of good ones today, but 
they're emerging. I think, you know, just to tell you, a part of what we did, we had a training there recently in Solisfrida, and we brought, you now with the Kildare Town Community School, all the students, senior students, 70 of them together to become peace ambassadors to promote this pause for peace movement. So, you know, to get it out, training them to be ambassadors for peace. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think, and that's what the young people are asking for. They're just looking, they're desperate because you don't just know where to turn. Can I fin- to find peace? Can I finish just by asking yes, of course. a more personal question, which was yes. around your journey. So you yes. you mentioned at the start you were a psychiatrist, is that right? No, not a psychiatrist, a psychotherapist. A psychotherapist. Okay. So yes. how did you end up from going from there to to where you are today? Oh, because I suppose I love British and I had this vision about British. <laughs> I suppose, uh, you know, I, I could never understand like, um, why we weren't in Kildare until we came into Kildare. I can understand it now because there were other sisters here before doing a wonderful job. And when we were founded, it was for education, the time of the penal laws to respond to an urgent need at that time. And... Um, I just had, when I saw the impact and her, the Bridget's story had on those who heard it, I was ready to give my life, to put it on the line, to share the Bridget story with the help of creating a more caring, compassionate and sustainable world. Does that answer it? That's beautiful. I love it. <laughs> right, Fender. Sister Rita, and thank I, you for your time. Thank you for your time. I, and you know, I, I I heard a saying there recently, and it's, uh, it was Noel Grady told me it a friend of the president. He says, um, he says, whenever somebody dies, a library burns down. And I feel like I've just been swimming deep dive, uh, deep diving in a library for the last 49 minutes. So I'm very, oh, that's, very That's grateful. lovely. That's lovely, Fender. Really appreciate that. Oh, I really know. Be- and I don't. I'm learning every day. I'm finding out something new. And that keeps me alive. And it keeps me interested. And it keeps me trying to create a more a safer and a more beautiful world. That we have a beautiful world, but trying to preserve it and, and care for it and tend it and you know, there's a possibility, you know, peace is on the, hopefully I'm an optimist, as you can see. Yeah. I've, you know, a positive outlook because I think, you know, we need it so badly in our world today. Absolutely. You've you've been so, so invaluable. I am really grateful of our time together here. Thank you so much, Fender. I enjoyed talking to you. Cheers. Now. God bless. All the best. Fr- there was an old advocation of people. May we all be protected under the cloak of St. Bridget. Oh, I love it. Oh, the false road. This has been a Solid Media original podcast and production.